Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. It is, I guess you could call it a continuation of sorts, of the tears idea that I did with Audie Joseph at the beginning of the summer. And so I had Tim Bontemps of the Washington Post on, and we go through both the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference in that order, and go through the tiers. So really where the lines of separation are between the teams. And one important thing to note is that we recorded this about two weeks ago, so there are a few things that changed over that time. Gordon Hayward's injury is a notable one, the firming up with Chris Bosh, and a few other things. If you hear something out of place, that's really the explanation. Reggie Jackson's another big one. So, conversation runs about an hour and a half. Really fun to go through it and clarify before the season starts. And this week's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. And you can get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash try now. That's T-R-Y-N-O-W. And now let's go to the episode. Thanks so much for coming on. Happy to do it, man. One of my favorite exercises, and this is a really good time to do it as we're getting to the outset of training camp, is to think about each conference, and it's good to do it separately in terms of tiers. And so I define it, other people can define it differently, but I do it as kind of like the surprise test. So it's like you'd be surprised if a team finished outside of that group, but you wouldn't be surprised if they finished kind of anywhere within it. We'll start with the East, and I think the first question in this is, do you put Cleveland in a group by themselves, or do they get in with some of the teams below them? I think they're in their own group. I mean, I think we've, I think LeBron James has established over the last six years that you know he's in a peer group by himself. I mean, he's been in the final six times in a row, which is something that nobody's done uh, other than a teammate of Bill Russell or Bill Russell himself. You know, I, I think unless LeBron gets hurt, I think the overwhelming likelihood is that they that they do that for a seventh year in a row, and that that puts them in a, in rarefied air by themselves in the East. It does, and in terms of the regular season. Last year, there were a lot of reasons why you would think that they would have a, a, a worse record than they did. Kyrie Irving missed about 30 games. Tristan Thompson didn't start until later in the year. You know, they dealt with a bunch of stuff like that. And, you know, LeBron played a fair amount. He didn't, it wasn't ridiculous, like unsustainable, because he took that break and everything else like that, and it felt like his foot was off the gas. Right. Also, the teams around them, like Boston got better, but to jump 10 wins when you were as as solid as they were last year, that's something, and Toronto got close, but last season seemed awfully close to their high water mark. So, you know, if you're expecting it, Cleveland had more injuries than you'd expect. Toronto stayed pretty healthy, played really well, probably shallower this year than last. So I agree with you. I think they're in a tier by themselves right now. That doesn't make it, you know, a lock that they'll make the finals or anything like that, but it certainly puts them in a separate place by all accounts. Yeah, and look, like when I say that, I'm not convinced that the that the Cavs don't finish the this, this season with the best record in the Eastern Conference. I could see them taking kind of the tack that the Heat did towards the end of LeBron's tenure there, and and they just really ease off the gas completely. And you know maybe they only finish with 52 or 53 wins or 55 wins, and you know maybe the the Raptors win 57 or the the Celtics win 56 and eat ahead of them in the standings, but. When the playoffs come around, if the if the Cavs are healthy, they are there. There's nobody in the East that's going to beat them, and I I think they're they're confident enough in that in that now, especially after going. I mean, look, they just went out and, and beat the Golden State Warriors and won 73 games in Game Seven of the Finals on the road. So I think that they're at a point where they're not going to have any concerns about where they're playing or or who they're playing or any of that. So 
So my, that's why I put them in their own categories. It's almost irrelevant what their record is in the regular season. When you go into the playoffs, no matter what seed the, the cap, I don't think anybody is going to pick them to lose a series. And because of that, that's why you know I think you can put them atop the conference pretty safely by themselves. And there is a parallel with them and the Warriors where they're so talented and the kind of the, if you want to call it the middle tiers of both conferences are just a little bit lackluster that, you know, let's say, let's say Cleveland's facing Orlando or they're facing Milwaukee. Even if they don't bring their A game, they're probably going to win. And that's true at home and on the road. Both the Cavs and Warriors are going to get a lot of teams best shots, but they will turn some disappointing efforts into wins anyway and that's when you start to see teams really get to those crazy win totals and part of you know with Cleveland last year LeBron wasn't his best for a lot of the regular season and there were still more than enough to win yeah and I think LeBron's gotten to the point where he's saving it for the playoffs right I mean I don't I don't even think he's saving it for the playoffs I think he's saving it for the conference finals and the finals well, sure, right. To be more precise, you're 100% right. And I think LeBron isn't LeBron isn't going to be taxing himself in the regular season. I mean, he's going to go out there and put up big numbers because he always does, and he's a you know one of the best players of all time. But but he he's going to make sure that when he gets to the finals, that he is going to have his as much energy in the tank as possible. That's just the way this is going to play out, and uh, you know, and we'll see. We'll see how um, we'll see how that that translates in terms of regular season wins. But you know, it, it would take. It would take a colossal injury situation or a, or a mammoth trade that we haven't foreseen for Cleveland to even have a contender with them in the East. And, and I, I, you know, I just, I think barring something catastrophic, we're going to see we're going to see Cleveland back in the finals once again. While it's not the most important thing in the world, does that idea of LeBron caring so much more about the finals than everything else affect the possibility of him winning the MVP? I don't think LeBron's ever winning the MVP again. It's not a, a knock on him at all. I mean, I, I, I think he's today the best player in the NBA because of what he did in the finals. I mean, Steph Curry had, Steph Curry's the best player in the regular season last year, unquestionably, but you look at what LeBron did in the finals and he got Cleveland his first championship in 50 years, and I think he deserves that mantle. But LeBron, I think, is just past the point of being worried about stuff like that. If he wanted to go out this year and win the MVP award, I think he could do it. He could put up crazy numbers and and lead the Cavs to 68 wins and and, and get, the regular, they get the MVP award this year. I have little doubt that he could do that if he wanted to. This might be about the end of the era when he could really do that. But, you know, in a, in a season where I don't think that any of the Warriors are going to have any chance to win win that award because of uh, narrative reasons, I think that, I think that you know, LeBron could do that if he wanted to. I just don't think that he has that interest. He, his focus is on trying to add to his number of championships. And, and the best way to do that is for him to serve as much energy as he can in the regular season. And then, and to your point, once they finally get to some competitive games in the, towards the latter half of the postseason – that's when he can really turn it on and, and try to get himself a fourth championship this season. He could win the MVP this year, even with a more lax regular season, just because of the the personality dynamics in this whole thing. So realistically, players outside of the top two or three teams in their conference do not win the MVP. It just doesn't happen. And people have said, oh, Russell Westbrook has a shot. And he, he has a shot. But it takes a lot. You can even think of Anthony Davis. You know, Anthony Davis put up insane numbers for the Pelicans. He didn't even sniff it. And so if you think about those top teams in each conference, Boston doesn't really have any logical fits. Lowry isn't 
doesn't have that reputation, it's unlikely he's going to have a better season. The Warriors guys have a shot, but they're going to hurt each other. And then, you know, maybe Kawhi, but if it's Kawhi versus LeBron, especially if Cleveland is coming off a title in the Eastern Conference being, you know, being what it is, I think that they'll just give it to LeBron. Like, this could be the karmic retribution for the one he should have won that went to Derrick Rose. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, that is one way to look at it. I frankly think that the MVP is going to be Westbrook or Kawhi Leonard. Interesting. I, I think the Spurs are going to win 60 or more games again because they kind of have, you know, I don't know if we talked about this the last time I was on with you, but I think the fact that they signed Pau Gasol, that was a regular season move. That was a move to me designed to keep them as competitive as possible in the regular season, get them another 60, 65 wins help them stay, you know, kind of in the same position they were in last year. And then when they get to the playoffs, they're not going to have the horses to beat the Warriors in a series. Now, maybe they get to the conference finals and lose instead of the conference semis because the, the Thunder aren't there, the one team they could never beat. But, you know, I, I think that the, the Spurs are going to win a ton of games, and, and Kawhi Leonard should be their best player, and, and therefore he'll have a chance to win it. And look, if the Thunder win 50 games, which I, I think they can do, or if, even if they win 48 games, I think if they do that and Russell Westbrook goes insane this season, I think he's going to win the MVP because people don't – there's people who don't think the Thunder are going to make the playoffs. There's people who think they might squeak in as an eight seed. And if they if they finish solidly in the middle of the pack in the West or let's say they win the – I know divisions don't matter, but let's say they win the, the Northwest Division and they finish ahead of a, a Utah and Portland, I, I think that Westbrook would have such a narrative push from that that he would get it. I know that in the historical sense of the MVP – that it's usually one of only the top couple teams in each conference, and you have to usually get to a certain threshold of wins to do it. But I think that it's safe to say that this season is going to be an anomaly from a historical standpoint, given that one of the guys who would have been most likely to win the MVP went to play on the team with a guy who won it two years in a row, and thus probably cancels each other out. And so I think you have to kind of look outside of that normal circle to find to find who's going to win it. And like I said, I just think that Westbrook is going to get such a narrative push that, like it or not, I think if they have a, a, a better-than-expected season, um, not even drastically better, just better, and he is as good as people think he can be, then I think he's going to have a really strong chance to win it. Your premise is a sound one and can also loosely be applied a little bit different with expectations to the person who, for personal reasons, might actually be the most satisfying MVP winner would be Chris Paul. And Chris Paul gets lost in the shuffle. He should put up some crazy stats this year. And if the Clippers, which seems possible to me because of... Well, if the Clippers finish second in the West, not to cut you off, that Chris Chris Paul winning that award would make a lot of sense. And you know there there are no ambiguities in terms of people thinking he deserved it. There are still longtime writers who remember back to him not getting it. You know, years and years ago, I think that was the one that Kobe. Well, got. and that also and that also could be and that also could be kind of a, like you mentioned it with LeBron. But rather than LeBron getting another award when he's got a million awards of everything, that could be kind of a uh, you know. There's a lot of people who think Chris Paul is a you know a, one of the elite point guards of all time. You know, I'm not saying they're wrong, but that that's just a a very predominant opinion. And and I, I think this could be. You know, this, that could be a way for a lot of people to kind of honor Chris Paul's career in a way that he hasn't necessarily gotten recognized yet. Yeah, I agree. So the next tier in the East is one of the more complicated questions just because it's defining who's in it and how you think they fit within each other. Who would you say right now? We'll start with the second, but if you wanted to find the whole tier at once, you could do that too. So I, I think there's three teams in it. And so I, Toronto and Boston, I think, are, are going to use – I, I would think would – most people would put the two of them in this group. And for me, the third team that's in it is Detroit. Now, Detroit probably will surprise some people when they hear that, but the Pistons played the Cavaliers tougher than 
than the Hawks did in the second round, and in a lot of ways tougher than the than the, the Raptors did in the third round in the conference finals. And I look at that Detroit team. They've got all of their core guys are basically under 24. Everybody's back. They all should get better. They have one of the best coaches in the league in Stan Van Gundy. They have everybody in that system for a, for a third straight year. You know, I, I just really look at that team, and I thought, you know, they made some nice additions to their bench. That was really their biggest weakness last year. They just they had just some, I think you called it the, was it the B&B sadness factory? Was that what you, was that what you called, uh, Steve Blake? A B&B losing factory. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. Yeah. Okay, who was the other name? It was uh, Blake. And who was the other person? Aaron Baines. Aaron Baines. Who got a lot right, better. Okay. He deserves so, a lot of credit. He got yeah. better over the course of the year. Aaron Baines, Aaron Baines was pretty good last year, but but uh, but Steve Blake was just a, an unmitigated train wreck as the backup point guard. And, you know, every time he'd come in, they would just get blo- their doors blown off. So not that Ish Smith is great, but he is far better than what Steve Blake was. And so I really think that Detroit fits in that group. And, you know, I, I could see a scenario where Detroit finishes second in the East. Well, I think it's more likely that they come in as the fourth team. But, but still, I think that, that that group kind of sits above everybody else for me. And I think you also see this as being the year that Stan Van Gundy's imprint really gets onto this team and that they've had a lot of continuity, and then they've added players on top of that, John Luehr, Bo Bob, right. and, and getting a, a full you know training camp and everything like that with Tobias Harris, who will be a very important part of that team. I, I see it kind of similarly to you, where whether you want to draw a line between them or not, you have... Boston and Toronto that are unambiguously in this group and then the question is one or two or something like that other teams before before I get into who my other team is uh if you had to guess between Boston and Toronto let's separate it regular season and who you think knowing what we know right now would be better in a playoff series it's a fascinating question because I think they're both very similar I want to preface this by saying Al Horford's a terrific player and I I think getting Al Horford was a huge move for Boston but I think it was the, I think it was most important because of what it did for them from a reputation standpoint. By getting out Horford, by beating out a couple teams for him, Boston showed that free agents want to go there. And I think in the long run, that will pay off for them in a big way. I think in terms of on the court, I'm not sure how many more wins the Celtics are going to get by getting out Horford. And that's not because Al Horford isn't a terrific player. It's not because he can't. He's not one of the most versatile big men in the league. I'm a huge fan of his game, and I have been for a long time. But I don't know if adding Al Horford means they're going to win 58 games. I just don't know if, if, he, if he's the kind of player to lift the team that many levels. You know, I, I think if you look at that Boston team last year, they had a lot of guys who, as a group, played better than maybe the sum of their parts would have indicated they would have. And I think a lot of credit for that goes to Brad Stevens, who did a great job. But I'm just not so sure that by adding Al Horford, they're going to become a 58-win team. At the same time, I think the Raptors also probably played a little over their heads last year, winning 56 games. And while I think they're going to be a really good regular season team again, you know, are they going to be able to get to that, to those heights? I'm not sure. And I also think that both of those teams are going to have the same issues they had last year in the playoffs again because, you know, I don't know if Boston's going to be able to, to, to generate enough offense when, you know, for as good as Al Horford is, he's not a number one option on offense. And they still, other than Isaiah, like they have him and Isaiah Thomas, but I still think if they get into the heart of a playoff series, they're going to struggle to create enough offense to really beat a very good team. And Toronto had trouble beating everybody in the playoffs last year. I mean, you can argue, you know, you and, you and Nate Duncan on the, on, on the Dunk Down Pod do a great job of breaking down these playoff games. I remember both of you going crazy about a million things that went wrong for Indiana at the end of Game 7 last year in Toronto. You know, I think the Pacers should have won that series. And I think Miami would have beat them if Hassan Whiteside hadn't gotten hurt. No matter what happened, he always found you. So I guess it's a long-winded answer of saying I think they're very similar teams. I think they're both going to be regular, regular season, better regular season teams than playoff teams. And 
because of that, I think they're, you know, in this scenario, I think it's most likely that they meet in the second round, and I have no idea who I picked to win. I like Boston meaningfully better. I think I'm one of the only people that has a strong opinion on it, and the reason why is depth. So one of one of the things that we saw last year was that DeRozan, talented regular season, I, I'm so critical of him throughout things that people think I dislike him. I don't. But he has a problem against talented defenders, and he is their best, you know, wing scorer. And so he showed against, you know, against Paul George, against Dang, you know, whoever they were kind of throwing at him, and LeBron when necessary, or Ramon Shumper, you know, whoever, that he's not great against those best guys. And that's not a big criticism. I mean, almost nobody is. But Boston has a lot of people they can throw at him. They also have a lot of people they can throw at Kyle Lowry. I mean, depending on how they want to use Avery Bradley, depending on how they want to use Marcus Smart. And so in a playoff series, I think Boston has a lot of that. I also think they have a meaningful coach advantage that Stevens, when he gets commensurate talent, will do a really good job of that. But the other elephant in the room, which probably gets underappreciated in all of this, though it isn't necessarily a Danny Ainge thing, is that there is this looming possibility that they transfer some of their future assets into present assets. And so there, I don't think there's a really good chance that they trade Isaiah Thomas and downgrade at point guard during the season, but there is a meaningful chance that they upgrade somehow, you know, whether that be Oklahoma City, you know, spirals and they trade Russ or just whoever, like any talented guy that hits the market, Boston has more assets than anybody else. So they can be in the mix for that. I don't know if they'll do it, but Toronto doesn't have that option. Toronto has put in all their chips, you know, they use that next pick on Jakob Pertl for better or for worse, they signed Rosen, they don't have payroll flexibility, you know, that sort of a thing. So that is, to me, if you want to call it a tiebreaker, that's the tiebreaker. It's a tough call, you know, they are really close, That that's an incredibly important thing to say, but I like Boston better. Yeah, I think you could flip a coin. I mean, I, I think that's a very sound, I think that's a sound way to, to look at it, that uh, Boston has the better chance of upgrading during the season, so why not go with them instead? I think that's fine. I do kind of wonder, I don't know if Boston really has the right kind of guy. I mean, I guess they have uh, Jay Crowder to throw it, DeRozan on the wing. You know, I, I, I don't know, I didn't really get a chance to see their games last year, so I don't know how often they matched up. Avery Bradley's a little small. Yeah, Bradley's more of a guy to put on Lowry. Right. I mean, Bradley's a terrific defender, but I think that the, uh, you know, he's usually, like to your point, DeRozan has more trouble when it's a longer guy. Like, I'm not sure Crowder's quite quick enough. It'd be a very interesting matchup. Um, You know, Lowry, they'd probably have to leave Thomas on Lowry. Um, Maybe they could try to shuffle him over to Damari Kale or somebody. But, yeah, no, they're they're two very similar teams, and I, I think short of making a big trade, like you said, They'd go into a playoff series, and if they did in the second round, I really wouldn't know who to pick because they, they, they are just kind of similar groups to me in that they, they're very good in the regular season, and over the course of 82 games, they're going to win more games than maybe in, than you normally think they should. But come playoff time, I just don't know if they have that, that little bit of extra oomph they need to really be an elite team. I sincerely doubt it will happen, but there are a few things that would bring me more satisfaction than Brad Stevens having the guts to put Isaiah Thomas on Jared Sullinger and just basically saying, if you want to post him down, we'll trap you and take the ball. Because that, that might be the solution. I mean, teams don't really do it very often, but just 
really forcing the issue and putting putting a guy on, on the other team's worst guy because Selinger, you know, maybe then then they'll involve him in more pick and rolls, but you know, you can handle that in a couple different ways. But it's one of those things. I don't think we'll see it, but as the league gets more creative, there will be more incentives for that sort of thing. I mean, the best example off the top of my head is the Warriors putting Bogut on Tony Allen and just letting him go. Selinger's a very, very different player, but the idea of just being completely callous about it and that optics don't matter and winning is the only thing that does. Yeah, the even better one's putting J.J. Barea on LeBron. Being like, you know, let, try to, yeah. Well, no, because like, it was the same thing. Like, let LeBron try to post up and, and go and go and go, and we're just going to worry about everybody else. And, yeah. you know, that kind of that really flummoxed the Heat back in 2011. Yeah, there are a lot but of you're right. flummoxed I mean, the Heat in 2011. That would be, it would be pretty fun to see... It would be pretty fun to see Sullinger, that happen with Sullinger, given that he just left the Celtics. I mean, that would be, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, size-wise and storyline-wise and everything, that would make for a uh, for a very intriguing, you know, series in the playoffs if it happened. So my other team in this tier, your point on Detroit is, is definitely a good one. And I think for me, the issue is just that I, I'm not completely sold on their ball handling and all just shot creation. But if Tobias Harris proves right. me wrong, I wouldn't be surprised. The other team for me is Charlotte. And Charlotte is weird because they had a good season last year, but they had this weird thing because Jeremy Lin was a very important part of their success and he's gone and Sessions is fine. He's not as good as Lin and that hurts. But if Michael K. Gilchrist can actually play, they're looking to me like a, a, a seriously elite defense that could also be capable offensively. And that is enough to get into this mix. So I don't know whether I have either Charlotte or Detroit really in the same conversation, but I think they're the next two teams, What whether or not you draw a hard line or a soft line. I have some concerns about Charlotte. I wonder how Nick Batum fares after he signed the big contract. I wonder how Marvin Williams fares after he signed the big contract. You know, I'm not sure who they're going to start at shooting guard. I guess, well, I guess they'd start Kid Gilchrist at small forward with, but after losing Courtney Lee. But, you know, they lost Courtney Lee. I think going from Jeremy Lin to Ramon Sessions is a really big downgrade for them. You were right. Jeremy Lin was really good off the bench for them last year. And, you know, when you, when you looked at them, when they were having a lot of success later on in the season closing games, I mean, it was with Jeremy Lin and Kemba Walker in the backcourt together, giving them two guys that could, that could attack the rim and, and create opportunities for other guys. And also, more importantly, Lynn was big and strong enough that he could he could at least stick with a shooting guard in that lineup. Um, Ramon Sessions can't. And, you know, if they try to play Ramon Sessions and Kemba Walker together, that's going to be a catastrophe. So I do think from a shot creation standpoint, that is going to hurt them. I think your point about Kid Gilchrist is a very accurate one. I would love to see him play. He's a great kid, really fun player to watch, an unbelievable defender. But you know, after the way his career has gone, it's hard for me to count on him being there. And then... You know, like, is Cody Zeller going to be able to consistently give them minutes as a starting center? What are they going to get for Frank Kaminsky? Is he going to be able to take some kind of a step forward? I would think that Charlotte, to me at least, is more likely to be more down in that in that second tier, or I guess probably the third or fourth tier in the East, where they're maybe fighting for one of those last couple playoff spots as opposed to being being up higher like that. But, you know, if, if Batum stays at the same level he did last year and if Kid Gilchrist is healthy... And if Marvin Williams stays at the same level as last year, then 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 I, I do think that they've got at least a chance to be somewhere close to that middle middle tier of the of the East, where they're up somewhere like you said, somewhere in that four or five range. Before we move on to the rest of the Eastern Conference, a quick word from our brand new sponsor, Audible. So 
So this is going to sound like a crazy question, maybe, but it is also informed by the events of the <laughs> last little bit is, are there any other teams that you think of as maybe not surefire like 100%, but even like 90% locks or near locks to make the playoffs in the East? I would have Atlanta ahead of Charlotte in, in your in your tiering system. Um, I, I think Atlanta is probably the fifth best team. I think Dwight Howard gets unfairly maligned at this point, mostly because of his personality and some of the stuff that he's done in the past. I still think he's a pretty good player. I think he was pretty good even last year at times for Houston. I, I think that was pretty clearly a pretty toxic situation all around, and I think he just needed to move on. But I think him being in Atlanta, he's a, I think he's a nice fit for that roster. I think that the Hawks are going to play a little differently with him than without Horford, but I think they're similarly talented. I think they're talent, they're players of a similar talent level at this point in their careers. And, you know, I think that different dynamic, you know, especially with the Hawks being a little better at rebounding, maybe a little better at rim protecting now, um, assuming this is assuming that the, the procedure Paul Millsap had the other day on his knee is, is nothing more than he's out for a few weeks, like they said. I think Atlanta is probably a clear playoff team. After that, it's hard for me to see another team that definitely is. I would say that probably teams like you know Charlotte and Washington would maybe be more towards the higher end of that. But I kind of look at the next whole group of teams after Atlanta as you know I, I guess so. I, I guess I would go Cleveland, Boston, Toronto, and Detroit in some order. Then Atlanta, and then a whole bunch of teams that you know depending on how things play out could go in a variety of different directions. That's certainly fair. One other huge point in favor of the Hawks, and I've been grappling also with their over-under number, which I cannot remember exactly what it is. I think it's around 42 or 43, is last season... I would think the over on that. Yeah, so would I. Last year, after the All-Star break, they were the best defensive team in the league. Not second best to the Spurs. They were better than the Spurs. And when you think about, okay, well, what has changed since last year? They swapped Horford for Howard. They're different kinds of players but Howard is probably overall a better defensive player and now they you know they're going to be giving no minutes to Jeff Teague and more minutes to Dennis Schroeder and that helps their starter defense you know it's probably going to hurt the crap out of their offense which can spill over into defense but they have that and Tiago Splitter you know has been a big question mark and kind of a big absence for them they got him for nothing when the Spurs got LaMarcus so there are reasons to think that they could be a really good defensive team, maybe not, you know, number one in the league, but that they can be good, and their offense is far from perfect, but there are reasons to believe that it could be fine, and I had toyed with the idea over the course of the, the like the offseason, especially with all the drama that was happening with Horford, that the Hawks could consider trading Paul Millsap, but realistically, that's just not the type of thing that teams generally do. I actually believe that teams should consider it more often. You know that if a guy is about to become a free agent and has a very good chance of leaving, that they should consider trading him. But most teams don't have the gall to pull that off. And the Hawks, especially considering their head decision maker is their head coach, it's even less likely that that will happen. I agree. I wouldn't necessarily put that past them to trade him, but but I, I agree with you. I think it's more likely than not that that if they are somewhere in the middle of the pack in the East and it looks like they have a chance to maybe get to the conference finals again, because I mean, look, if if Atlanta or Detroit got past Toronto or Boston in a playoff series, I wouldn't be shocked. I, no, I, I wouldn't either. Surprised, but I, I certainly wouldn't be shocked. So to your point, if it looks like they think they can get another couple rounds of playoff money in their pocket, and then you know if they have to move on from the thirty-two, I agree with you. I think it's more likely than not that. Now, if they made it this far, he, he finishes the season with the Hawks. Yeah, and I, I still expect that he'll go somewhere else after the season, but 
teams are fundamentally optimistic. You know, that's just the way that, that these these things are. And you can even see that one of the most sure. obvious examples of that was the Jazz with Millsap and Al Jefferson a couple years ago. It was like, you know, it looked like everybody kind of thought they were going to leave, but they just rolled the dice with it, let it go. And, you know, they reacted relatively well. But if they had gotten something small for one or both those guys, it could have put them in a good position. No question at all. And it is, it is, it was something back when, back when all those things were falling into place. And I mean, you know, there was, they were definitely talking with teams and, you know, that Toronto was in the mix maybe at one point for Horford. And I mean, there were some different things that are for, for Horford, for Millsap. And there were some other teams that were making calls when it seemed like Horford might be going, might consider going to the Hawks. And if, if he had gone back there, it would be pretty fat. would have been pretty fascinating to see, you know, whether he'd gone to Phoenix or Toronto or Denver or, you know, who knows where else? Like if, if they had really put Millsap on the market and gauged his interest, it would have been very interesting to see, you know, what kind of place he might have ended up in. Yeah. So I'm going to rattle off the rest of the teams, and I think we'll just kind of together sort out. And I'm going to exclude Brooklyn and the Sixers because I think we both agree that they're separate from everyone. Yeah, else. they're 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 in they're in a tier by themselves at the bottom for sure. Okay, <laughs> so these are these are the remaining teams in order of finish last season, and so some of them have had plenty of change. Miami, right? Indiana, Chicago. Washington, Orlando, Milwaukee, and the Knicks. The next two for me, and I don't know an order on it, would be Indiana and Washington. Both have star players that are close to their peak of their powers, Very, and they have depth overall. You know, they're not necessarily super deep, but they have enough quality players. I mean, Beal, Gortat, Mahinmi, Markeith Morris, you know, they, they've got guys. Like, this isn't, those aren't teams that are going, they would get sidetracked by an injury to their main player, but you know, if they could survive right. other stuff. And the Pacers have flaws. I mean, I, I think that they, they're the strangely constructed team that they have all these guys who are better at creating for themselves than others, and it doesn't necessarily make sense. But they also have a lot of talent. Miles Turner should be a lot better. He looked strong to me in the limited amount we got to see of Team USA stuff. I've, I've also been a Miles Turner believer forever. I had him over Porzingis, which I do not now, but I did then, and, and there's yeah. a reason for it. And so those two teams stand out in terms of it's easier to make the affirmative case for them. And while there are these negative possibilities for both of them, just like there are for every other team in this conversation, and honestly, for the teams above them that we've already discussed, it feels like those are less likely. So I would have those two above kind of the rest of these teams that are more egregiously flawed. I'm not quite sure I'm with you on that. I definitely am with the Wizards. I mean, to me, it's very simple with the Wizards. If John Wall and Bradley Beal each play 70 or both play 70 or more games, the Wizards will be one of the top six teams in the they did a nice job, I thought, rebounding from not getting Al Horford and filling out their team with depth pieces. You know, Yamahimi, you know, maybe be, might be a bit superfluous with Marcin Gortat, but the fact that you have both of them means you have 48 good minutes at center. Having 48 good minutes at a position is important. I thought that, you know, Marquis Morris is a fine starting power forward. They were much better if they got him last year. Um, so I thought that was a good move. And, and, you know, they've got a little bit of depth behind him. Full disclosure, I'm a say Bonaventure graduate, but I, I think Andrew Nicholson has a chance to, has a chance to be a, a decent backup power forward for them. He can shoot a little bit, score a little bit off the bench. I like them getting Trey Burke and Thomas Sadoransky in the backcourt in the offseason. You know, Marcus Thornton at the minimum was fine, you know, as a, as a backup shooting guard. You know, but for them, if, if Wall can recover from these knee surgeries he had in the offseason and if Beal can stay on the court, they're going to be good. Like, that's, they, were, they were a top-four team in the East each of the two years prior. Then those guys both got banged up, and they weren't. So I, I think they'll be good. I think your, your Indiana discussion, then the end of it. I, I really like Miles Turner, but I just, I'm just very baffled by that whole team. In the NBA, it's really important to have an identity. 
And the Pacers had an identity for a while. They were a team that played defense and, and had this lunch pail mentality every day. And I, I look at them now, and they, like you said, they have all these guys that are, that are good creators on offense, but they can't really shoot, and they don't play a lot of defense. So I think they're more in that next group, which is somewhere you know, where you've got these next five or six teams that I just, I just don't really know where to put anybody because I don't think any of them are that good at this point. Yeah, it, it's a big problem for the kind of this next tier because so if you even if you have them separate and the point on on Washington is is true. I mean, they, they, when they've been healthy, they've been good, and they they were kind of sabotaged by some of the and stuff Scott, that happened. And Scott Brooks, Scott Brooks should be an upgrade on Randy Whitman too. I don't know if Scott Brooks is a great coach, but it's I think it's, it's damning with fame praise, but definitely. Well, yeah, and, right. and he's well, at least a, he's at least a good coach. Well, and what Whitman did early on, to his credit, is that he got those guys to buy in defensively. But that started to yeah. erode, partially because of personnel, but partially just I think I think his message was falling on deaf ears more than it was early on. And Brooks will help 100%. with that. The the Thunder defended. You know that was something that was a hallmark of him is that he got these young guys to care, and that is enough. When you're talking about these shaky teams in the East, that's enough to keep them over a lot of them because if they care on that end, they'll be that because they have offensive capability. You know, like this is a team that can score yep. points. So the remaining yep. teams, Miami, Orlando, Chicago, and Milwaukee, and the Knicks, it is so... And I have Charlotte in there too, actually. And you have Charlotte and in I, there too. I have, Char- I have Charlotte in this. Because you're... Yeah, yeah. So, so it's so hard to make heads or tails of it because... There are a lot of teams that are in here for different reasons, and that some that I see more upside with than others. And it's also hard because there are a lot of teams in this group that I'm just I'm skeptical of their off season, and that kind of does spill over into it. And I think the most obvious one for that is the Knicks, but it's also true with the Magic. But the Magic team just doesn't make sense. It is a bizarre mix in that in that you know I, I think certain teams in this group are better than others, but you know for for the most part, you know it, it's hard to. It's hard to look at it's hard it's hard to look at that group and, and really really say definitively I know this team is going to be better than the other teams and some of that's just because some of them aren't very good some of that's because of recent injuries um, some of that whatever the reason it is it is going to be interesting in that you know we're going to go into the season and we're not really going to have a clue how how these teams are going to shake themselves out if we're going on the kind of assumption, and I think assumption is a fair word for it, that Chris Bosch is not going to be a regular participant for the Heat, that hurts them immensely because there there just isn't much of an identity around it, and they made so many decisions to be kind of not short term, but to not to not expose themselves long term that I think there are some real paths that they're the worst team among this remaining group. You know, not not worse than the Nets and the Sixers, but the worst team among that group. Yeah, I I think it's I think it's possible. It probably depends on how you feel about Goran Dragic and Hassan Whiteside at this point. I mean, if if you believe that that Goran, I I think Goran will be much better this year because he was a bad fitness to Dwayne Wade and that they both were guys that needed the ball in their hands all the time. And now with playing next to Josh Richardson, assuming he gets healthy at shooting guard, you know, I, I think that, that Goran will have the ball in his hands constantly and running pick and rolls pretty much every possession with Hassan Whiteside with, you know, some shooters around him and, you know, hopeful for their, for their sake, at least hopeful improvement from Justice Winslow. You know, they, they, you know, they, they could wind up being okay, but certainly their chance, like if Chris Bosch was healthy, they would be in the in the group, you know that five, that four, five, six, seven group for sure. And without him, you know, their best case scenario is probably that you know maybe they could squeak into the seven or eight spot, but more likely they miss the playoffs. 
and this is also the last year I think that they have their own pick, and then there's the the weirdness for next year. I think is when the start of the Dragic picks. So the way the way that it works is that they so the pick is they have no first round obligations this year, but they have a second round pick that they're going to give up. But so the first round pick situation is that so their 2017 is is fine. They're they're clear with that. But 2018 is protected one to seven, and then unprotected in 2019. And then their 2021. And then 2021 is unprotected. Unprotected. So basically, there's a little right. bit of a there's a little bit of safety valve in case they're a disaster next season, not this season, which is possible too. We don't really know. And and then right. this season they're free and clear, so you know they can they don't have the incentive to tank in terms of keeping the pick, and we've seen some nasty stuff happen with that in recent years. But if if the wheels fall off, that's not the worst thing in the world for them. And part of what makes Miami so weird is that you're right that there's a lot that is favorable to Goran Dragic in terms of that the pieces fit him in a complimentary way. We'll see if they can, you know, obviously they want as good shooting at the four as they would have with Chris Bosh, but, you know, Derek Williams can do some stuff, and if they play James Johnson there, they can do some stuff. But their offensive creation is really solely dependent on him because Tyler Johnson and Josh Richardson are both excellent complimentary players that are better in that role. And there's no shame in that. You know, like I, I love Josh Richardson. I think he's he did a great job second half of last year defensively, can play off the ball, but can defend ones a great fit with Dragic. But so what you start to get into with these teams, and this is arguably more true of the Knicks than it is of the Heat, is that any injury, any ineffectiveness just completely tanks their offense and their defense is, you know, they have justice and they have Whiteside and Whiteside's a little bit overrated as a defender. But so that's why I could see the wheels falling off this because if Dragic misses a month, they're done. Yes. And I and I do think it's going to be an interesting situation for Justice Winslow because he's going to be given every opportunity to expand his game as a creator on offense, as more of a be able to score more on offense. You know, they, they really like Winslow a lot and they're, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to have the opportunity to you know, to give him the ball a lot more and let him do some stuff. And, you know, that, that could wind up being a positive for them down the road too, but it might, it might also lead to them having more losses this year. And, you know, look, this point, this draft is very loaded coming up. I mean, if, if the Heat are off to a, a bad start, you know, maybe they, you know, if they think that they're going to have uh, Bosch's num- money come off the books, maybe they turn around and shop Dragic at the deadline and try to get another pick for him and maybe, you know, maybe even further, you know, add to their draft assets and, you know, try to go forward with a couple picks next year and, and Winslow. And then they've got 40 or 50, or if they trade Dragic, maybe in close to 60 million in cap space next summer and they can really go try to remake their team again so you know there, there are a lot of interesting options on the table for miami but but one thing we do know without boss is that you know they're not going to be you know probably higher than at best like we said before seventh or eighth in the east if everything goes right it's a low ceiling and the, I, the reason why i connect it with the knicks is that the knicks have there are some arguments that they'll be good like i, I think that they're starting five is very capable. The question is going to be, how much can that stick together? Because the second you take one of those people off the board, it gets a lot harder for them. Yes. I mean, their, their bench is, their bench is, is pretty bad. I mean, their backup bigs are Lou Amundsen and, uh, and Kylo Quinn. Their backup shooting guard is Sasha Bujicic, I think. It's a, it's a weak bench and, and they've got, you know, I, I don't think Derek Rose has, has, has got a chance to be that good for them, but, you know, you have Rose as an injury question. You have Carmelo Anthony who's become an injury question. You have Joakim Noah who's a huge injury question. To me, they have a they have a low ceiling without without much upside for the future other than the development of Chris Porzingis. So it's um, 
it's going to be very interesting to see if they're able to, to maximize what, what they have in front of them this year because it feels like this year is the best this group is going to be. And what is so crazy from a team-building perspective with them is that they, they did, to their credit, they did a nice job of adding two talented point guards in Derrick Rose and Brandon Jennings, but they have no one behind them that can really run an offense. And not only did they have Langston Galloway, who they basically let go. They had restricted rights on him. He didn't get paid a ton of money by the Pelicans. But they would have been a great place for, I, I mean, Fred Van Vliet's somebody who I've used for other things. But, you know, those type of guys who would be, you know, maybe you give them a partial guarantee and you put them on. But instead, they signed Lou Amundsen, Marshall Plumley, Maurice Endor. And, like, they're not, those guys, well, I mean, some of those guys might be bad players. But it's a strange allocation of resources when, there is so much direct evidence that not having capable point guard play can completely ruin a team. Yeah, I mean, it's one of many odd decisions the Knicks made this summer. I, I thought the Noah contract was terrible. I, I didn't really get the Rose trade. I thought signing Courtney Lee was fine, but, you know, again, he's another guy that you signed him for basically maybe the last year, maybe two of his prime, and then he's going to start going the other way. Just was an odd, just an odd, a lot of odd decisions when you're, when you're, you know, the guy you should be building around is 20 to sign a bunch of guys who are 30, but it's not the first time we've said that about the Knicks. It certainly is not, and that ties into a point with Orlando, which, I mean, I, I don't know if you would define it the same way, but of their remaining best guys, I would say that Aaron Gordon is the most reasonable candidate to be their, you know, best long-term player of their pups, and they decide, okay. We're not only going to add Serge Ibaka, very good player, of course, but we're going to move Aaron Gordon and play him out of position now. Yeah, again, they 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 had a they had an off season that I I don't know anybody that that, that gets it. You know, they gave up a lot for Serge Ibaka, who, as you said, is a good player, but he's not going to he's not going to agree to extend his contract with them, and he's also going to be uh, an unrestricted free agent in a year, and they gave up a lot for him. They went out and signed Bismack Biombo for four years and seventy two million dollars, which. Maybe that contract works out, but I know a lot of people who, even as the playoffs are going on and Biombo was playing great, were saying, "Good luck to whoever decides to pay that guy a ton of money this summer because you know you're, you know, this is a guy that before the playoffs started might have got ten million a year, and now he's getting close to twenty. Irregardless of his skill set, you know, it's hard. It's hard to see that contract working out as anything more than maybe a maybe a break even for the Magic, maybe worse. You not only do they sign Biombo, they already had Nikola Vucevic on the team, who I'm not as high on as some people are, but it's a decent player. And now, you know, you know, now he's already kind of grumbled about, well, I better be starting when the season starts. He, like you already mentioned, Aaron Gordon stuff, they're playing him out of position. I'm not a huge fan of Alfred Payton in general as a player. You know, now they're really putting all the chips in the Alfred Payton basket. You know, the, the you know, they're, they're pushing, they're pushing them all in on him to be a, be a really good player. I just, I don't know. It's a fix. And I, you know, it just feels like a team. I really like them hiring Frank Vogel. But it just feels like a team that's going in seven different directions at once, and you know I, I don't know how they're going to make that work on the court. There may be no better encapsulation of Orlando's offseason than signing Jeff Green to $15 million contract and then immediately invalidating him by signing Bismack Biombo. That, that's, a, that's a very good way to put it, all the way around. It's a, it's a very, very good way to put it. But so, but what's different about Orlando is that, you know, other than our, both of us having misgivings about Alfred Payton, they have talent. It's just that they have talent that doesn't really make sense together. So there are ways that you could do it. But Ibaka is such, this, is such a big figure for them because they gave up so much for him. And we've seen this in the recent past. Incidentally, Oklahoma City with Ennis Canner is another really good example of this, where 
a player totally has a team over a barrel. And I was trying to think of players who who have more leverage on their current teams this upcoming summer than Serge Ibaka, and the only answer to me is is Kyle Lowry. Lowry has in, in basically infinite leverage on the on the Raptors. It, it's so weird because Orlando has a lot of good players. You know, I, I, there are ways that you could build it. They don't have good point guards, but it's so hard to imagine it working. Generally, these kind of situations where you go, man. You know, this could this could really work out if, if they figure out how to make all these pieces fit. Generally, that doesn't work out. If everybody can't see a vision for a team, sure, maybe everybody's wrong, and maybe the vision's there, and we just haven't seen it, or maybe somebody takes a huge step forward, or, or, or something like that happens. It's just hard to see how this Orlando situation works out in any way other than, you know, at the end of the season, all of us just going, yeah, that, that, that was a team that just had – too many pieces it didn't really fit and needs to readjust how they're uh how they're going to line everything up if they're going to get better would you need to change a single word of that expression to apply to the chicago bulls no well kind of here's what i think is different about the bulls they very clearly punted right the bulls the bulls decided that you know they moved on from Derek rose and they you know they, they moved on from joe kim Noah, and they moved on from Pau gasol and i mean look they they went and got Rajon Rondo because they needed a point guard. They gave him basically a one-year contract. It's not guaranteed. You know, it's a weird contract, but it's essentially non-guaranteed for the second year. And you know, that's fine and whatever. I'm not a huge Rondo fan at this point, but he's probably better than Rose. And worst comes to worst, it's a one-year contract that they can move on from next summer and go after other guys. The Dwayne Wade thing was weird. He doesn't really fit with their team. But at the same time, if you look around when they signed him, they basically, again, he's a guy who had a one-year deal with an option for a second. I think they basically said, whatever, Dwayne Wade is a good player. He's out here. We have the money to, spot, to spend on him. Why not spend it on him? You know, I, I am very skeptical about the fit, but at least they went out and they signed short guys to short-term deals who, if everything works out, maybe they'll be able to stay competitive for a year and then go into free agency with that kind of halo effect around them. But Orlando went out and made drastic changes and threw down, in a lot of cases, long-term money and still don't seem to have a vision. So uh, given how much stupid money was thrown around this summer, the fact that the Bulls you know, more or less punted on free agency and tried to just sign stopgap solutions, even though they're big name ones and maybe don't quite fit with Jimmy Butler, I, I can at least give them a little credit for having a little more of a rational plan, even if the plan might not work. They also didn't give up long-term assets like Orlando did. You know, Orlando traded right. away a lottery pick and Victor Oladipo, you know, so they, they did that for Serge Ibaka, who's a rental. And one of the huge things with Chicago, beyond the questions of fit and whether this will alienate Jimmy Butler and, and their shooting and everything like that, is making sure that these are rentals. You know, Wade has a player option, and there are big questions like if he opted out, you know, we'll have to see what a season is, but where will he go? Like, does him, do are they kind of in the trap that Miami was in before it broke up? And I mean, it made Miami look terrible, but that, and with Rondo's a little bit cleaner because of the light guarantee and everything like that, but I'm worried for the Bulls because, you know, they're a team that I care about in terms of their long-term future because they have Jimmy Butler, you know, they have a lot of things that I like, is making sure that they can make this a clean break, which is something Orlando definitely can't do because they spent long-term money, but if Chicago cannot do that, you know, whether this season is a success or not, they need to be able to get out of it so that they can be a real contender in free agency, especially if as you and I have talked about at length before, some of these big market teams don't figure it out. Like, there's a possibility that Chicago is the most put-together big market team that has real cap space next summer. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I I don't know exactly what the Rondo contract situation is, but he either has no guaranteed money in the next year or very little. So I, I'll be surprised if he's back next year with them. I look at the Wade situation, and A, I don't think Chicago's under any pressure to keep him because if he leaves after one year, what's the big deal, right? I mean, it's not it's not like Dwayne Wade has a lot of longstanding capital with the Bulls. Yes, he's from Chicago, but I think anybody who follows the Bulls saw what they did is kind of a, hey, we might as well take a shot at this. And if, you know, Dwayne Wade decides to go buddy up with Chris Paul with the Clippers or with Chris Paul and, and Carmelo Anthony with the Knicks or, the you know, the, the, the four of them, including LeBron James, go, you know, form a banana boat team somewhere. Like, if they... If something like that happens, I don't think anybody with the that's going to look at the Bulls and say, "Ah, you guys really messed up." You know, I think they'll just kind of go, "All right, well, that was a that was fun to have him back in Chicago for a year, and then he can move on." So, and I, I mean, look, maybe Wade won't opt out, but I, I have a feeling he probably will, and he'll he'll you know he'll want to be a free agent next summer with Chris Paul, and you know, then if they want to both come to the Bulls, they can, or they want to go to the Knicks, they can, or they want to do something else, you know, I, or you know, Dwayne wants to go to the Clippers. I, I, it, it looked to me like Dwayne Wade signed with the Bulls because he needed a place to go. And the Bulls signed Dwayne Wade because they had the money and they might as well try to be as competitive as possible and they hoped Dwayne Wade would help them. And I think next summer, you know, if he has no other better situation to go to, maybe he'll wind up back with the, with the Bulls again. But I think it's more likely than not that he, uh, that he moves on and goes somewhere else. Yeah, that's certainly fair. And then the last team that we have left here is Milwaukee. Milwaukee is fascinating because, I mean, I was higher on them than basically any of the teams in this beyond the whole Miami Bosch thing. But Chris Middleton being out for a while with a torn hamstring, it hurts them. But, you know, maybe they'll be a little bit less less disappointing than some people think just because they have other talent. The problem is just that they don't have anybody to fill his role. Yeah, I think that's going to be a real big blow for them. I would have had Milwaukee as the seventh team in the East, I think, before this. I would have had the six teams I had before, Cleveland, Boston, Toronto, Detroit, Atlanta, Washington, and, and Milwaukee as the seventh team. They're not going to make the playoffs now, I don't think. They already were a team that struggled to shoot the ball. Now they lose their best shooter. Uh, Middleton's a really good shooter. He's just a very good player in general. You know, now you, you know you, you basically lose him for the entire season. You know, he's out for six months, which, if that's accurate, then the earliest he's going to come back is late March, early April. And... It's hard to think he's going to be ready to go April 1st, say, to play at a high level after not playing for six months. So I think you basically just have to determine that he's gone for the season. And, you know, if he's gone for the season, it's just such a big drop-off. I mean, I, don't, I haven't thought about who's on their roster, but, I mean, do they, do they try to play Michael Carter-Williams at shooting guard? Do they play Rashad Vaughn at shooting guard? I mean, do they – I don't know. It's just a, it's a very disappointing injury because that team looked like it was going to be a fun team to watch. Got Jabari Parker there. They just signed Yadis Antetokounmpo to a, a long-term extension. You know things were things were optimistic. They broke ground on their stadium. You know they just hired our friend Seth Part now, so that was good. Seemed like things are going really well for the Bucks, and it looked like they were you know going to be able to bounce back and have a you know a, a team that seemed likely to make the playoffs and and, and have some forward momentum. And uh, you know and now you get this move, which I have this injury, which kind of stinks, and it's just kind of it's hard to see how they are able to cobble together enough to. To be a playoff team, I mean, the only way I guess I would I would reserve judgment on that is if is if both Giannis and Jabari Parker take huge steps forward this season, which I think both are capable of taking steps forward, but I don't know if they could do enough to overcome the loss of a guy as key to them as Middleton. That's certainly fair. And the other part of it, we talked about this a little bit with Miami, is that considering the stability that it seems like they have, strangely enough, in terms of just the overall situation, you know, with guys like Giannis locked up and Jabari Parker's on team control, maybe they are open to taking their foot off the accelerator a little bit. Let's say they start 
poorly, maybe by the all-star break, things are a little bit shaky. You, you, you're you more open to doing that because they don't have the immediate pressure. They already have the money for the arena set up. And they could, because they just don't have that many long-term assets, I mean, beyond internal improvement, which, of course, they, they have a ton of potential for that, is since they don't have really much in the way of cap space, maybe they, you know, tank a little bit, you know, push it a little bit harder, and that is how they answer one of these big questions. Because if they can get a top 10, even maybe a top 5 pick in this draft, that could set them up way better than they ever expected because they thought they'd be pushing it a lot more this year. Alternatively, they should just play Thonmaker at the two and just make me happy. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about Thonmaker. Yeah, they, they got a lot of they got a lot of long, young guys, and, you know, it, you know you're right. I mean, if they... They have one more year a little bit and maybe get a top ten pick in, in what should be a very loaded draft this year. Maybe they end up with a guy end up with a guy like Lonzo Ball from you know Alma Mater or some other some other ball handler to go with go with their wings. I mean, yeah, they they got the potential to, to really take a jump back up in the game and sit back on the court. But you know, I, I think it's more likely now that they, they finish somewhere in that nine to twelve range with uh the Middleton sideline because he is he is just a very underrated, very good player, and, and losing him is just really going to hurt them a lot. So I'm trying to piece it together for myself, but I think in terms of regular season record, my current leaning would be, of this group, Chicago and the Knicks kind of above, and then Miami, Milwaukee, Orlando kind of in a morass. Does that seem about about right? For me, I would probably have Indiana at seven. Yeah, that's fair. Probably have Charlotte at eight. Probably I would have Milwaukee at nine. I probably have the Bulls ten, and then I'd probably go yeah, the Knicks, Orlando, and Miami, or maybe yeah. That, I mean, yeah, those teams are those teams are probably all right about the same record. But yeah, that's that's probably all all pretty all pretty similar. And then yep. uh, and then go with you know then obviously the the Nets and the uh, the Sixers at the bottom. There's a chance that the that the Sixers outperform the Nets, but when a team is just as unbelievably bad as they were the last couple of years, it can be hard to turn that around really quickly even though they changed a bunch of personnel. But the Sixers, you know, they're they're removing a lot of the horrendous players from the rotation, which could be a big help. Yeah, you know, they're going to be fascinating. Yeah, they're going to be fascinating. They they their five best players all play power forward and center. So how are they going to get as many of those guys on the court at once? As, you know that's going to be an interesting thing to see. You know how does Ben Simmons look? You know obviously he's going to be a very interesting player for people this year. We'll see how he does. I think Dario Saric is, is probably is never going to be a star in the NBA, but he's got a chance to be a rotation player and help them as, a, as another. It's kind of a a lesser version of Ben Simmons in many ways. A guy who can you know do just about everything but shoot with the ball. So. You know that that could that could be interesting to have two guys like that playing most of their minutes of power forward, or you know uh, maybe playing at or at the two forward spots together. You know, everybody's been waiting for two years now to see Joel Embiid play. You know here's hoping that he can be healthy for them and, and play this year. And then you know Julio Okafor probably came out of last season as maybe the most un, you know one of the more underrated, certainly I think the most underrated and unher- un, unheralded player in this rookie class because you know here's a guy who averaged 17 and nine on a, a, a truly horrendous team and who had nobody who could pass him the ball and had all these issues on the side. So, you know, I think that Jaleel's got a chance to, to be a very good player. And, you know, then they've got Nerland Joel, who, you know, is going into a contract year. And, you know, if those two guys are healthy, if, if, you know, if all five of those guys are healthy, I don't know if he'll even play or he'll play very much at all. So 
it's a it's a fascinating mix there in Philly, and, and you're right. They they finally have gotten past the point where they have five or six guys that should be in the league, and and now I think they're going to be fun to watch just because you know I, I think they're still going to be terrible, but we're not really going to know how they're going to roll their guys out there every day because they're going to have to try to find ways to get them all minutes. In my off-season preview for the Sporting News, which came out, I think, in April for the Sixers, and it might have been later than that, I wrote that they were the worst team I could ever think of that had a logjam at a position. And it's crazy that it somehow <laughs> yeah. got more pronounced because now they have like a little mini logjam at the four as well because they have players like Rashawn Holmes, who I like quite a bit, who... I don't even under, or Jeremy Grant, like those guys are fine. You know, I don't think you want to rely on them as key pieces of like a a conference finals team, but for a, you know, it's not even clear both. Yeah. It's not even clear both those guys will make the roster. It's crazy. And so they, they have all this. Then also the idea that I think everybody assumes they want to trade at least one of their guys, but nobody can really figure out to who for whom. And so it's like that sort of thing is super weird, but they have more talent. I, I, they're going to be a top five, Early on, they're going to be a top five league pass team. There might be a thing with them. This happens for me a lot with young teams where I watch them a lot more early than late because late I start focusing on the teams that actually matter. But they will certainly be worth keeping an eye on because they also like among the players who have the highest ceilings, young players who have the highest ceilings, theirs are almost exclusively the ones that we know the least. Like Joel Embiid is is the prototype for this. Like there are guys with high ceilings like Carl Towns where we know what he is. We have a pretty good idea of what he's going to be. You know, maybe he can be a little bit better or worse than that. But like Ben Simmons, whether his game is going to work or not at this level is still a very open question. Embiid, it's whether it'll be on the court. Jaleel Okafor could end up being the biggest test of whether this offensive brute center can still work as a starter in the league. You know, you have all these things that are working at the same time, and you're doing it on a team that doesn't really have much outside of it. So it'll be, I'm really interested in it. And the other players are like Bob Covington is fun, you know, fun guy. Bayless will be compelling if they play him with with Simmons and just kind of all the other stuff. Like they have solid vets on this team. I'm excited about it, but they're going to be terrible. Yeah, they're going to stink, and I actually think they'll be they'll be worse than the Nets again. I mean, I I don't want to spend too much time on the Nets, but I I really like the I really like most of what they did this summer. I think they got lucky not getting Alan Crabb with that offer sheet. Yeah. Um, though I, I know they needed shooting and got and tried to go get him, and he would have been effective, I think, for them on the court, but it just would have paid them too much. But you know, I I thought getting Jeremy Lin was one of the best contracts of the summer, only giving him two years, giving him twelve million a year. When you know, I mean, Matthew Delvadova got four for forty. I mean. You know, Jeremy Lin's a, uh, I think, a fairly significantly better player than Matthew Delvadova and got, you know, barely more money per year. You know, the Nets won 21 games last year. They won 21 games while basically not playing Brook Lopez the last three weeks of the season. But when they didn't really practice the last three months of the season, when they didn't, ha- when they had sub replacement level point guard play virtually the entire season especially after Jared Jack got hurt. You know, and, and, and now, you know, I think Kenny Atkinson is going to be a good coach for them. He's really well known as a developmental guy. Ronnie Hollis Jefferson was one of the most effective rookies last year in terms of, you know, impact when he was on the court. The Nets, for as bad as they were, were a positive plus-minus team whenever Ronde played. So, you know, he, he should help them. You know, so I, I think that, I think that with, with the young guys they have and, and with more of the structure they have now with having – Having Jeremy Lin there playing the point at what should be a you know at least somewhat above a place and level level you know having him and Brooke Lopez with a little bit of shooting around him and some young guys like Karis Levert and Ronda House Jefferson and Chris McCullough that can hopefully develop a little bit I, I think they'll win a few more games than last year maybe twenty five twenty six and at least show signs that they're they're starting to take steps in the right direction. 
Yeah, I was going to say Celtics fans would be sad with that, but 25-26 wins is not that much, so they would still be getting a, a, a really strong pick in that swap. Yeah, they'll still be in the they'll still be in the five, six, seven range at best instead of the maybe the three range. So yeah, so, so, so Celtics so, still get somebody good. So let's move on to the West. I think the the first basic question is: the, Are the Warriors in a tier by themselves? I say yes. I don't think we need to discuss it too much. Yes, I think that think that's safe. Okay, so tier two is more divisive, and re- I think most people would agree that the Spurs and the Clippers are in it, so that kind of parallels the Celtics and the Raptors in the East, but whether another team gets in into that group and who that is is very, very different depending on who you talk to. Yes, I would agree with that. I have a feeling I know who your teams are there, though. I only have one, and it's the Jazz. Yes, yes, that's what I, that's what I meant. I should have said team. <laughs> yeah. There are people who say Portland, there are people who say Memphis, there are people who say Oklahoma City. You know, it really does depend. What do you feel like? I think this this group really only has three teams in it. I, I think that I think that the Spurs are definitely in it, and I, I think it's more likely than not the Clippers are in it. I, I still think that, that those two teams are, are a, a step above everybody else. I think sort of like the the, the Eastern Conference, I, I think that the group after that gets is where you get a little more complicated in terms of where teams go. So so you have those two do you so you have those two separate and then the other team the other could potentially Yeah, I, I don't think them. I don't think any of those I, I have a lot of teams that I'm intrigued with after that, but I I think that I need to see some of those teams prove they can do I mean, the Clippers and the, the, the Spurs have consistently won 55 or more games for basically five years. And I, I think that uh, there are reasons why those teams could slide back a little bit and why other teams could come up. But I, I think I need to see some of these other teams show me that they can actually play at that level before I'm going to give them the benefit of being in that group. I, I think it's a little different than the East, like where I put, say, I moved, I moved Detroit up. You know, I, I think we're talking about Toronto I don't think Toronto and Boston are even really necessarily in the category of teams like the Spurs and the Clippers at this point. They, they still. I think that I think that the Clippers and, and the Spurs have, have proven enough that they deserve to be in their own category for now. The other consideration here, I love the Jazz. I think the Jazz are have the potential to be a really special team. But it's also true that there is a very good case that it will be more of a postseason thing than a regular season thing because they're you know they're they're a little bit different. They're going to have to adjust to, to players, and because as you mentioned, they don't have the track record. You know, like the Clippers last year had a lot of bad things happen. You know, Blake Griffin getting injured and then compounding that with everything else that happened. And while Chris Paul was relatively healthy, they were dealing with that. And so, and they still won 53. So that's plenty. And with Oklahoma City falling off and the Spurs, like I, I think that you're right that in terms of regular season record, it probably is those two and then everyone else. Yeah, and look, we talked about this a little bit the other day. I don't remember if it was on a podcast or not, but I think Utah can be really good. However, Utah has been supposed to be really good for two years now. And for a variety of reasons, they haven't been. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to knock anybody. I, I like Quinn Snyder as a coach. I like their front office. I think they made a lot of really smart moves. I think you look up and down their roster, they have a lot of talent. They've got depth at pretty much every position. So they, they, should, be, they should be a very good team. But that, that team hasn't made the playoffs yet. They should have made the playoffs last year, and they had a chance. I don't remember what game it was they lost. They played at home. I want to say it was like the last few days of the regular season, and they, they played. They, I want to say they lost to – I don't know. They might have lost to Houston. They lost some game in at home in 78 or 79. I know they had some injuries, but they, they lost the game at home where if they won it, they basically were going to get themselves in the playoffs, and they didn't win it. And, you know, I, I think this team needs to prove to me that, they, that they're that they able to jump up to win 50 games 
um, and be in that kind of ballpark. Because if you're going to put them in a group with the Spurs and the, the Clippers, you're expecting them to win over 50 games, I think. And they, I don't think they've been at 500 yet with this group. So they haven't. I, I need to see them. I need to see, right. So I need to see them get to that 50-win range and prove that they're a, a legitimate playoff team before I'm going to jump them up another level. Because if they, you know, it's basically the same. I mean, I know they're going to get Thompson back and they get George Hill, but the injuries they had last year, if you looked at the West, the way the West played out, you would have thought they should have made the playoffs instead. And the fact that they didn't, you know, I want to see them do it before I'm going to put them as high as being a, you know, expected them to be having home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs. The game you were referring to was number 79 for them, and it was one of the more egregious failed... Like, people talk a lot about that Spurs game against the Pelicans two years ago, which cost them a lot. So that game, the Jazz were playing at home against the Clippers, and the Clippers sat Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, and J.J. Redick, and still won because Jamal Crawford dropped, I think it was like 30 or 35 on him. He went crazy. I was watching that game in Memphis on my computer going crazy. I was there, was following the Warriors around because they were going for 70 wins. I was in my hotel room. I was watching that game, and I was so angry. Not not, not that I, I don't care who wins or loses, but just as a basketball person, I was just angry because you looked at that game, and it was like, all right, here here's this young team. They have a chance to get in the playoffs and do something they haven't done in a while and kind of take that next step forward as a franchise, and they're just coughing it up. And it, it, it was disappointing to see that play out that way. They had it all there. It was right. It was, it was exactly what you want. Home game. I got the team sitting everybody. If you win it, you put yourself in a great position to get in the playoffs, and they couldn't get it done. It was a, a major disappointment. And then, and, and while they, you know, they ended up missing the playoffs by, you know, by a little bit more. You have to remember. So they had forty wins. The Rockets had forty-one, and then Grizzlies and Mavericks had forty-two. But they also lost the last game of the year to the Lakers. So like, this isn't the and same they, and thing. They, and they gave up. And they tanked that game after they, because they knew when that game started they had made the playoffs. Right. And that's the thing people forget. I'm not trying to diminish the 60 points from Kobe, but if you go back and watch that game, the, the Jazz, the Jazz were not doing anything. They knew that they weren't making the playoffs, and they were crushed, and they just were kind of on the court, but not really there. So, you know, they, if if that game mattered to them, it would have been played slightly different. Here's a crazy hypothetical that I had never really considered before. If that game had gone as we expected it, like let's say let's say Houston loses their last game because that was what would have opened the door for Utah. If Kobe has like a disappointing game, you know, let's say he scores like 15 to 18, does he play on Team USA? No. You you no. thought you think he I was don't done? Think so. Yeah, he was done. Okay. He was done. Sure, I I guess, I guess anything's possible, but no, I, I think that I think that was the end no matter what. And I mean the fact that he scored sixty was incredible, but I, I think that he was going home after that game and, and packing it in no matter what. We're pretty much agreeing that San Antonio and the Clippers are that group. I expect the Spurs right. to have a better record, but it'll be close. So then there are a lot of contenders and you can draw the line a series of different places. I would have the Jazz as the top of the next group, but then the other teams that are probably considered Portland, OKC. Dallas, Memphis, Houston, so basically that whole division. Yeah, so, so I mean, basically every other team that made the playoffs last year and the Jazz, who didn't, who nearly did, and then some will probably argue New Orleans as well and maybe Minnesota. I know you're high on them. For me, the, the, the contenders for the next group, and you can and I would draw a line in this, is Utah, Portland, Oklahoma City, Memphis, Dallas, Utah, and maybe the Pelicans or the Wolves. Okay, so my next tier of teams, and I, I'm drawing no lines at all in this group, are reading them down the list. So it's not, this isn't in any order. Minnesota, Utah, Oklahoma City, 
Houston, Memphis, Dallas, the Pelicans, and Portland. So that's eight teams for five playoff spots. And I think if you really want to get crazy, you could throw Denver in there too, but I don't think Denver's quite in that group. So, you know, that's a, that's a heck of a lot of teams. And, and you could even maybe throw the Kings in there if you want to too, somewhere. But I, I, think, I think it's basically those eight teams for five playoff spots, uh, the first eight that I mentioned, which, you know, just kind of tells you what the, what the Western Conference is going to look like this year. In many ways, I think it's similar to the East, where there's three or four teams at the top that you know are going to get in the playoffs. And then after that, it's just going to be a total crapshoot, and it could go one of one of six different ways, and you could have five or six teams within two games at the end of the regular season. And after the injuries now, I think it's more likely than it was before that even the fringy teams in the West are better than the bottom of the East again, which will lead to me complaining about top 16 for another year, which I know you love so much. Yeah, I mean, maybe, but I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure all these teams are going to be that good either. But, yeah, a couple of them will know, fall I, off. Yeah, and I, and I just don't like... You know, some of them could be really good, but like the Rockets could be could be pretty terrible. I'm not convinced New Orleans is going to be good. You know, I'm, I'm not convinced that you know you could have injuries for a team like the Thunder. Memphis could have injuries. Dallas could be all over the place. Like a lot of those teams are are, are kind of in that mix together. But it, you know, I, I'm not I'm not necessarily sure that any of those teams are that much better than their Eastern Conference counterparts. But they, they it's definitely going to be just as interesting no matter what. So I would draw a small, very faint line of distinction around Utah. Portland and Oklahoma City is the fringe team. And what I would say for them is that those teams are, to me, more likely than not to make the playoffs. And the other ones are more in that coin flip thing. You know, like for Utah, I think it would take some bad luck to get there. They're deeper than before. Their point guard position is so much better than it was. Portland was really healthy last year, but they're good. They're, they have star power. They have lots of guys. And then Oklahoma City is the question mark because we haven't seen it. You know, they're more uncertain than, than other stuff. But at least we know they have talent. We know they have a lot of talent. They have star power. And, and you know, they have depth at certain positions. So I would definitely have Portland and Utah there, Oklahoma City's buffer. And then there are teams in that kind of next group that I that could beat them. You know, that's why it's kind of a faint line as opposed to the bright line of the Spurs and the Clippers. But it's a lot easier for me to see a path that Memphis doesn't make the playoffs or that Houston doesn't make it than Portland. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think most of that's injuries. I, I think Ma- I think if Memphis is healthy, Memphis is better than Portland, for example. I think Memphis might be better than all those teams if they're healthy, but that's a gigantic if. I mean, you have Chandler Parsons, who spent the last few years more or less injured. You have Marcus Alls coming off a, a very serious foot injury, and we really, you know, we can hope that Marcus Alls back to the player was before, but we really have no way of knowing that's true. We have uh, Tony Allen and Zach Randolph there another year older. We have Mike Conley that's another year older. So if that team is healthy, I think they're 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 probably the fourth best team talent wise. Just if you're playing one game, you probably pick them over everybody else for one game. But you know, obviously we're talking 82 games and then playoffs, so we're talking about way more than one game. And chances are they're going to get banged up. I think that those three teams you mentioned, Minnesota and Memphis, are the teams that make the playoffs in some order. And then Dallas, Houston, and uh, the Pelicans are on the outside with everybody else. But, you know, there is a lot of variability with all those different teams for a variety of reasons. And, uh, you know, I, I, think you're, I think you're right in that the, the teams you picked are probably the safest ones to make the playoffs. But, you know, I also think that, that, that some of that's because they have less injury concerns than other teams because they're younger. Yeah, that's fair. I, I think I would have full-strength Utah over full-strength Memphis. The the other part, and I talked about this a little bit in for those of you who listen to Real Jam Radio with regularity, on the when I did the Southwest with John Charks and Rob Mahoney, is Memphis 
their point guard situation terrifies me because they have Conley, who's just getting over this big injury, and then his backups are Wade Baldwin and I think it's Andrew Harrison. That is not good enough. You know, like that's not good enough even if Conley stays healthy, and it's disastrous if he doesn't. And then, you know their right. bigs are their bigs are fine, and so that that's kind of part of it for me is just that it'll be harder to survive it. However, it is a little bit unfair to do that and then talk about Portland, who doesn't really have anybody to replace Damian Lillard. The difference is that Lillard has stayed healthier than Conley, especially in the recent past. Right, exactly. You know, and that and that's why I think you're right that those teams are safer. I, I think you're right. I, I, you know, I, I'm not saying it's a slam dunk that Memphis has a better, is, is has the highest ceiling for playing one game, but, but they, I think they, I think if you knew that Memphis is going to be healthy, you would say they're most definitely going to make the playoffs. But the reason, the reason we're skeptical, at least in part, is because we're not sure they can do that. Because Portland and Utah and, and the Thunder have younger teams and in general have been healthier teams, I can certainly see your, your, your reasoning there. And, I think Minnesota might end up being the best, better than all those teams this season if everything shakes out the right way for them. But I, I think that one way or another, they're going to wind up being that that fifth playoff team, whether it's they finish seventh or eighth or they finish higher. And you know, if, if, unless uh, that, that's that, I see that as kind of I see I kind of see Memphis and Minnesota as part of that group with those other teams. And then I I probably draw my faint line there with then uh, then Dallas, New Orleans, and Houston after that. New Orleans is a crazy variance team because. When he's healthy, you know, Anthony Davis was one of the five best players in the league two years ago. And yep. you could make a very credible argument that while they lost star power, you know, with Eric Gordon, Ryan Anderson being gone, that they have more depth, they're more more able to withstand, withstand injuries. But then at the same point, you hear the reporting recently that, you know, the sad news about Drew Holiday's wife, Lauren, and her, her battle. But then also Tyreek Evans, it looks like he's not going to be back until December, Quincy Pondexter's not going to be ready to start the season. And you can just see this movie starting again where even if it gets better, they just won't have enough of a margin to get all the way back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look, like they went and signed Solomon Hill for $52 million. And Solomon Hill last year averaged four points and two rebounds in the regular season. I mean, and then, you know, he had a he had a hot shooting two weeks with the Pacers in the playoffs where he averaged seven points and shot 57% on threes against the Raptors, and they got $52 million. Now, I, I like Solomon Hill in that series. I agreed with, you know, the, the assessment you and Nate had on the podcast that they should not have declined it and they'd have him for very cheap this year. But, you know, is Solomon Hill worth $13 million a year? I think that's a very open question to ask. And they're going to be relying on guys like Kim and Etwan Moore quite a bit. And you're right. They're, they're going to probably be healthier and, and, and better defensively than they were with guys like Eric Gordon and Ryan Anderson. But I, I do wonder if, they're, if their ceiling is much higher this way. It's going to be a challenge, and Minnesota, you know, especially with, with the news of the retirement of Kevin Garnett, they have a lot of things that they're going to need to figure out, but they also have the right people in place to do so, and that's what's exciting about it, because Carl Anthony Towns is special, and Wiggins could be, and then they still have, like, they're, we've talked before about how teams like Memphis could be sidetracked with bad point guard play. Minnesota, as long as they don't trade Ricky Rubio, they're going to be pretty stacked there, which is another key part of keeping themselves above board because Rubio being out is what sabotaged them during the Kevin Love years. Yep. And here's my case for Minnesota finishing with the fourth and fifth best record in the West. I think they have a top five player in the league in Carl Towns. Might sound like hyperbole, but I had him as my third team All-NBA center last year. And, you know, we, I know we've talked before, I was at the game the end of the season when he he destroyed Draymond Green and the Warriors and the Timberwolves won in Golden State. Not only did they have him coming back, they have Andrew Wiggins and Zach Levine coming back and should be better as another year older. 
They drafted, you know, I thought the second best player in this draft in Chris Dunn. They also have Ricky Rubio, who I like a lot. They have Gorgie Jang on the bench and some other some other decent pieces of depth on the bench. And most importantly, they went and got Tom Thibodeau, who, you know, he may not be, you know, people have their issues with Tom and about certain things that he's done. But here's what can't be argued. Tom Thibodeau is a terrific coach and is a huge upgrade over what they had before Sam Mitchell. So, you know, you go back and look at the Minnesota series season last year, they lost a ton of games where, you know, they were playing and, and they, they were in tight games and the, the last couple minutes of games, they just simply didn't execute properly and didn't win. Combination of age, guys getting older and more mature and better coaching, I think will help them out a lot in that department. And the way I look at them, as I compare them to the Thunder, I believe it was in 2009 and 10, so I think it was Westbrook's second season, Durant's third, when they went from winning 23 games to winning 50. And if you go back and look, I think the Western Conference they won 50 games in. They finished tied for seventh. I think they finished eighth that year. That was a far tougher conference for them to climb into the playoffs in at the time. I think these are interesting teams in this second half of the playoffs here, but they're, this isn't the West of old where you had eight teams vying to win 52, 53, 54, 55 games. And I, I think that Minnesota you know, really has a chance to, to make that kind of a leap and, and really you know, kind of establish itself as, as, as the next team in the league and the one that you, know, you can look down the road and, and see as the, the most likely one to, to, to be the biggest challenge to the Warriors over the next two or three years, assuming they keep, uh, keep Kevin Durant and Steph Curry and everybody after, after they hit free agency this summer. Doesn't it feel like this is another year where Dallas will be the ninth or 10th best team in the conference, but because of injuries and because Rick Carlisle's a wizard, they just end up squeaking into the playoffs and then we're just kind of a little bit disappointed, but also impressed? Well, I, I was just going to say that, you know, I, I, the reason I put them ninth in that next group was because I put them ninth because I don't think they should make the playoffs, but I think they will. And, you know, I, I don't know if that will be because Memphis is banged up or maybe Minnesota doesn't do what I think they will, or the Jazz stumble, or the, the maybe Westbrook gets hurt for a few weeks, or the, the Blazers regress, which I think is possible. So I think, you know, they, they have some interesting questions they have to figure out. But, you know, I look at, I, I look at Dallas, and, and you're right. I mean, Rick Carlisle is just a phenomenal coach, and, and Dirk Nowitzki still manages to, to get shoot efficiently, even though he's in his late 30s. And, you know, they're, they're just, they just find a way. Those two guys find a way to get in the playoffs every year, and it won't surprise me at all if, from April 15th, we see that the Warriors are going to be playing the Mavericks in the first round because the Mavericks found a way to, to sneak into the playoffs and nobody thought they would. Yeah, it, it, it really does feel that way. And part of why I'm so intrigued by the West is that the teams that are a little bit below this group, there are reasons to think that they could outperform their expectations. So it's not a situation of other teams falling and them jumping up, which is more analogous to what happened to the Rockets last year. We're like, you know, Sacramento had, a, a, in some ways, a disastrous season last year. They, you know, Rondo played better than expected, but, you know, all the stuff with George Carl and everything else, and they got better from a talent perspective than they were. We'll see what happens with Rudy Gay. They won 33 games. Dave Yeager, Dave Yeager's a good coach, too. Yeah, it's a huge... I, I, I could see, you know, there are there is a reasonable argument to make that they could win 40 games. I don't expect it, but they could. And the Nuggets are the same thing. I think the Nuggets are really underappreciated in terms of their ceiling. I think they're well they're well probably well graded in terms of their median and their floor. But then the other one, and this is the island I'm on that nobody is on with me, is that while I do not expect them to make the playoffs, the Suns could be better than people think because they added talent. They added talent that makes sense with their team. They get an offseason where they don't have to deal with the Morris Twins insanity. And if Eric Bledsoe can play 70 games this year, he was an all-star for the first part of last season until he got hurt. If they can add him and you know have competent depth at every position, 
that is enough. Like, you think about what Sacramento did to win 33 last year. Like, they could push into the 35-plus wins to me. I don't expect it, but it's possible. I'm very curious about Phoenix. I like your line of thinking there. I think long-term, they have a lot to be excited about. At the same time, you know, I also just think there's there's a lot of questions there developmentally. You know, Devin Booker was great the second half of last season, but it was only the second half of last season. And if you be able to carry that forward uh, and, and do that over 82 games, I think that's a real question. Are we going to see Brandon Knight and Eric Bledsoe both be able to A, stay healthy, and B, play well together? We haven't really seen that yet. You know, they have two rookies in Dragon Bender and Marquise Chris that I don't think we should really expect to see a lot of. I mean, both of those guys are pretty raw. I, they both have very high upsides. I thought they were both, you know, interesting and intriguing picks by Ryan McDonough, the team's general manager. But I also think it's fair to say that th- those picks were made with three years from now in mind as, as opposed to, you know, this year. So while I do, I do admire you for saying that, and I, I can see the upside there. And in terms of if I'm picking a team for the next five years, I would probably take Phoenix over all the teams that aren't making the playoffs because they have enough, they have enough variables in their favor that you would think that it, it will work out for them. I think for this year, it's much more likely that they finish 13, 14, 15 again, and they come back and get another super high pick, and then they can kind of keep, keep accumulating young guys and kind of rebuilding this core um, to where hopefully a couple of years from now they're looking like they have, a, uh, they have an intriguing team in front of them. Yeah, that might be that might be a more fair way of putting it, and I don't think I have much more to say on it. Though I am excited about seeing what guys like Bender and Chris could do long term. But you're right that it isn't as much about the present, especially because they're both so young and raw. I mean, Chris, seeing right. him in summer league, like, he he's a he's a ways away. But the yeah, other... he and Bender, he and Bender both have a lot have a lot of talent and a lot of potential, but they're all, they also have a lot of work to do. So then the only other team left is the Lakers, and is there a reasonable path that you can conceive of where they make the playoffs this year? Well, have we talked about Denver at all? Oh, yeah, we should talk about Denver. I really like Denver. You know, they have a lot of dudes. It doesn't necessarily make sense because, he, like, you can think of a guy like Fareed that they don't even necessarily need him in the rotation if everybody they're else is healthy. A, they're, a lot like, they're a lot like Orlando. It's Except a different, their talent makes more sense situ- together. Well, a little, it makes a little more sense, but I'm not sure it does. It, it, I, I, what I was going to say was, it's like Orlando in that they have just a lot of talent, raw talent. But to me, it's very unclear, A, which guys they could choose to build around long-term. B, are any of those guys capable of being true star-level players? And C, what is their optimal lineup and their optimal playing style going forward? Because I think they have to figure out, you know, it's different than Orlando because they didn't throw it all together, and they've pretty much just drafted all those guys, which is pretty cool. But they, they really have to figure out how are we going to play, how is it going to look, and and who are we going to go with? Because you can't keep all these guys at some point. So, you know, they're going to have to consolidate assets. And I, I actually think they might have a better chance of swinging a trade for a star than the, than the Celtics do because it's a lot easier for a GM – to have a press conference with three or four players sitting next to him and three or four picks sitting next to him. And the Nuggets have enough young players that I think they might have a better chance of if a guy like DeMarcus Cousins, say, hits the market, that maybe they can go, all right, you know, here are three or four young guys, and then you can have that instead of here's two or three picks, first-round picks for down the road. They also have vets, which could be intriguing. Gallo, depending on what they do. Wilson Chandler, Kenneth Fareed. If he could stay healthy. If yep. he could stay healthy. Like you, you have all those players that, depending on which GM you're talking to, could end up being a selling point. You know, that those are stable veterans. Nurkic, I'm, I think, has some, still has some fans around the league. So you have all those circumstances. 
And this year for the Nuggets is more about evaluation than anything else. You know, you need to figure out what the heck you have in all these guys. But yep. they have a lot of guys to evaluate. And that's that's exciting because they also don't have to commit long term. Like I, I'm working on these offseason previews already for 2017 for the Sporting News. And one of the things that I mentioned in that is that the Nuggets don't even have anybody who's extension eligible this year. Like they have a long time to figure this out. And while right. you know ownership never wants to be patient, you know, like you always want to be better, you want to do all that kind of stuff, like there's always a pressure. It is different for them than some of these other teams because they don't really have that high of expectations. And if it doesn't work early, then you know, if, if it takes them another year and they add another, let's say, top five, top ten pick to this group, that could be really special considering how awesome this draft class is. And that's why the evaluation is so important is because they're going to need that because they could be looking at adding at basically any position. So if Moutier is not great, maybe add one of these three or four point guards that's awesome in this class. If, you know, if, it, if it's a three or a four, then there are some guys that are options for that, Josh Jackson maybe. And so if they could theoretically, if it doesn't work, that could be fine for them, but they need to know what they have. And I think they I think they understand that and I think they're honest about what their opinions are, but at the same point, they're good enough that their best case scenario is fringe playoff team. Yeah, I mean look, if everything works for them, they could definitely finish seventh or eighth. No question. I mean they have a lot of talent. But again, I, I liken them more to what the Minnesota Timberwolves were last year, where they you know, they'll be frisky and there'll be some teams they shouldn't, but they'll probably finish with thirty wins and then you would look at them to say, All right, in two thousand seventeen, eighteen, that's when they should really take a step forward when some of these younger guys get more mature and another year experience under their belt. So let's go back to the Lakers now. Uh, is there a reasonable chance that they can make the playoffs? No. Yeah, same. They can be better. They I mean, can they, be a lot better. It's, it's, it's they should be better. Like, you know, it's an evaluation year for them. If, if they can get Yeah, they're like, Denver, they're like Denver, but the ceiling is lower. In some ways, Way the lower. ceiling is higher because, well, I, I shouldn't say in some ways the ceiling is higher. I, long term, you know, in theory – you would think Ingram maybe has a higher ceiling. I'm not as, as big an Ingram fan as others, but I mean, you could argue that maybe they have they have a chance to have the best player on either team, which is which is important. But but yeah, I, I think that you know you got to see can Julius Randle and Ingram play together? Can D'Angelo Russell mature and take a step forward? Can you realistically have Julius uh, D'Angelo Russell and Jordan Clarkson play together? Which I'm not sure you can. I, I think Jordan Clarkson might be better suited to be a Jamal Crawford type as a guy off the bench. So, you know, you start, you have to start to figure out these kinds of things and then you can, you know, and then going forward, you can figure, all right, where do we need to go add pieces? Where do we look to add in the draft and free agency? Which of these guys are superfluous to what we want or what we need? You know, it's a long road back for the Lakers, but, you know, at least they're starting to have some young guys on the court that they'll hopefully be able to, to look at and, and start to figure out what they've got in them. Yeah, it's, it's a different kind of season. There might be a parallel to the Sixers where there are more reasons to be excited, but that doesn't mean they're going to be good. Exactly. And that's why it's so infuriating that unlike the Sixers, where even when they spent money, they spent short-term money, you know, like on, let's say, Gerald Henderson or something like that. The Lakers spent long-term on guys that are older. I mean, Wall Dang's 31, Mozgov, I think, is 30. And so those guys, you know, those guys are presumably better now than they will be two years from now. And it's so weird to do that. Like, the Clarkson contract is fine, except for I hated the structure, but the contract itself in terms of terms is fine. And right. to do, but just the overall conceit of like, okay, this is what we want to do in the off season was just dumbfounding. It wasn't the smartest use of long-term assets. That is for certain. Okay. So let's, let's end this with uh, a question that's kind of what team would it surprise you the least 
if they overperformed your expectations. So like a team that maybe were a little bit lower on them, but you know that they have that kind of possibility to break through and be, let's say, like what Portland did last year. I mean, I think if we're talking like what Portland did last year, it's probably Denver. I mean, Denver probably has the highest ceiling of those teams that aren't in the playoffs. You know, I think most people, I thought Portland was going to be one of the worst teams in the West last year, and they ended up winning 45 games and, having, you know, winning a series in the playoffs. So, you know, I, I think that Denver's got a similar chance to do that. I mean, I'm very down on the Knicks. I would, so I would say if the Knicks are good, uh, that would be the Knicks for me, you know, because the Knicks could be good in theory if things break their way. So if, if they are, then, then I would say them. They're a candidate for that. And I guess maybe Orlando. I mean, Frank Vogel's a really good coach, and if, if he if they if he does find a way to to make them into a defensive monster with you know playing Aaron Gordon at small forward and you know just really you know just kind of doing a lot of what he did in Indiana and just grinding out eighty five to eighty wins, maybe they could. But yeah, I, I think I think if you're trying to find this year's Portland, I think Denver is probably the best bet. They're definitely a good one. The other team, their their expectations are substantially higher than what Portland's were at the beginning of last season, but. I wouldn't be surprised at all if, as a regular season thing, Houston really outperformed just because their offense could be insane. And that can work in a regular season setting. I I wouldn't expect them to make much noise in the playoffs. But, you know, if they're top five, top three offense, then that's a team that can do a lot. You know, that's a better offense than Portland had last year. And if they can do that, and they'll be terrible defensively, but if they can, you know, put that together, you know, I could see them having the fourth best record. And considering how badly I was burned on them last year, it's weird to be not high on them, but to be high on their ceiling again. But they have a lot of talent. Very true. I mean, say what you want about James Harden. He's one of the best players in the league. And Mike D'Antoni knows how to coach offense. And, they, you know, they're probably going to score a lot of points. And, you know, if, if guys like Taron, you know, if, if Donatus Modiunis gets signed and, and is healthy for a year and, you know, they have some of these guys take steps forward, then, yeah, they, they could do enough to surprise. I mean, yeah, I, I, I do think that's fair. They, they probably should get consideration of that because, they, you know, this is a team that won 56 games two years ago. And, no, they don't have Dwight Howard anymore, but they still have James Harden. And, if, and I think if they, you know, if they jump up and win 48, 49 games and, and finish fourth or fifth in the West, yeah, I think that that will surprise a lot of people. Uh, anything else you can think of? We've talked plenty over the last few days. Anything else you want to? Yeah, no, I, I think on, at least on this topic, I think we've I think we've exhausted our, uh, at least on, on the tearing out the teams, I I think this is a fun exercise. I know we were saying before we started, it's, it's a fun way to try to look at the season and figure out what's going on because you get a chance to really, to really look at the teams and see where everybody stacks up. And it's a good, it's a good exercise going into the regular season to, to look at it and, and see, all right, this is where all the teams fit and, and how, they all, how they all come together as we get the training camp to get going. Yeah, I definitely agree. Thanks so much for taking the time. No problem, man. Happy, happy to do it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me as always. Thanks again to Tim Bontemps for taking the time. You can read him at the Washington Post, and you can follow him on Twitter at Tim Bontemps. That's T-I-M-B-O-N-T-E-M-P-S. Love talking with Tim, and this was the final of the barrage of podcasts we recorded during his cross-country drive. He was relocating from the New York area to the Bay Area to cover this Warriors team more in-depth, and thrilled to have him around more frequently for selfish reasons because I love talking with him and just because having his perspective on the Warriors will be fun and as of right now they are the biggest story in the league we'll see if that continues but also thrilled to be a part of the CLNS radio family it's been a great experience so far and one of the ways that you can listen to this podcast is using the CLNS radio app you can check that out and then really thrilled to to have Audible on as a as a sponsor it is a great product and 
depending on, on what kind of thing you enjoy in terms of that, audiobooks are, are a great option with that. I talked about that a little bit before. You can try it out for yourself. So you go to audible.com slash try now. So it's www.audible.com slash try now. You get thirty you get a thirty day free trial and free audiobook and I think you'll enjoy it. It's been a, a, a great thing as a kind of a resource in the you could call it the premium audio spectrum to have that out there and I, I really do enjoy it. And so you can check that out. Also, if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent on the podcast, you can reach out to me at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X on Twitter, Danny LaRue MBA at gmail.com for more long stuff, we could call it that. And uh, really do appreciate that. I've had a lot of other stuff come out recently. Locked on Warriors is going strong, getting great listenership there, which is great. That's my daily Warriors podcast that is a part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Also, getting back into the swing of things with Dunked On, did something with Nate about the uh, the potential of a new CBA agreement, which was very exciting. It is very exciting. And, you know, of course, if anything like that actually comes through, that will be a sig- significant part of the Real GM radio podcasting world for a, a brief bit of time. Already lining up a, a great set of guests for the next few weeks. And I mentioned this at almost the end of every episode now, but just have you ready for it, that... I don't do a lot of super topical stuff at the very beginning of the season just because jumping to conclusions is always a little bit dangerous. So it will be a little bit less time sensitive at the end of October, very beginning of November, but it'll still be really good content and then get more into that kind of analysis. And then that lends itself to the idea of hopefully in the second or third week or a little bit around there, talk to somebody affiliated with the biggest story in the sport at that moment in the league at that moment. And we'll see what that is. And part of the fun of that segment is that it it gets a little bit more free flowing, but fortunately I have contacts all around at this point. So we'll do that. And if you have input in terms of what you've liked or haven't liked during the off season, you can definitely reach out to me with that. I've enjoyed the division capsule podcast and still have one remaining on that. That will be one of the things that comes out before the start of the season. So you can look for that as well. So Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm